Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Technology Report will be back next week, and we have a very special program for you today. Joining us are Dr. Mark Esper, the 27th U.S. Secretary of Defense, and Deborah Lee James, the 23rd Air Force Secretary, who are the co-chairs of the Atlantic Council's Commission on Defense Innovation Adoption that just last month issued its interim findings with 10 recommendations. Funded by innovative companies and venture capital firms, the final report is due out in September. Secretaries Esper and James, welcome to the program. It's a real honor having both of you on. Thanks, Vago. Good to be with you. Yeah, great to see you, Vago. Uh, terrific having you on. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Um, I, I want to first start off, I want to get into the report because you guys have a lot of terrific recommendations, as you guys point out. The issue is not uh, that the department's not innovative enough, it's that it's not adopting innovation fast enough. But first, I have to ask you about the debt deal uh, that has an impact on national security. On the one hand, uh, defense has been exempted uh, from the caps. Next year, it'll be at the administration's projected FY24 request, uh, but without an inflation adjustment. And, and that has a lot of folks concerned that this isn't the time for political antics at a time when spending matters, uh, not just spending uh, smart, uh, smartly. Uh, Mark, why don't you start us off? What are the implications for defense spending? Uh, and, and how is it we need to be thinking about the next couple of years where we are in a very important window, uh, no matter what anybody says with the Chinese? Well, look, I am concerned about the debt deal based on what little I've read that's in the paper. Um, it, it says it'll go up 1% a year, I think, um, not inflation adjustment. So that would mean actually a, a loss in DOD funding. And I've long argued that we need to be at that point that I said during my time in office, 3 to 5% annual real growth. Uh, because look, we are at a point in time where we need to um, overhaul uh, our military in many ways to move beyond the Reagan era weapon systems. That's something I launched as Secretary of the Army in 2018. Uh, at the same time, uh, those new systems need to be prepared to deal with the Chinese. Uh, and that is obvious as we look around a strategic landscape. So I'm, I'm concerned that uh, it will not be uh, allow sufficient growth of the DOD budget to meet our nation's security needs. Debbie? I would add to what Secretary Esper said, um, yes, but it could have been so much worse. So I agree with everything that he said as someone who has spent my life working on defense issues. I too believe that given the threats that we face around the world, the need to modernize, the need to take care of our people and continue to invest in R&D, I too would like to see more for defense. But given that we're in the environment that we're in, given that um, the pendulum has once again swung in Washington and our leaders and much of the public is worried about the debt and deficit reduction, and given that we are where we are, um, I am glad that defense will be held essentially flat uh, next year. Again, uh, that would be at the president's budget, slight growth. Uh, but not keeping up with inflation. So again, not as good as uh, one would have wished, one who worries about things, uh, the threats around the world, but it could have been so much worse. Uh, it, it, indeed, uh, spoke, spoken like uh, somebody who unfortunately had to go through uh, the whole Budget uh, Control uh, Act uh, nonsense. Um, I, I want to ask uh, both of you, right, if, if you've got you know, major needs and don't have enough money, 
uh, you're going to have to get creative, right? I mean, as as the saying goes, um, uh, we're going to have to get, we're going to have to think our way through the problem, as Winston Churchill used to say. Um, when you were both in office, you you tried to get more creative, to get more uh, for your money. As you note, the the Pentagon's problem isn't innovation; it's actually innovation adoption. Ukraine is offering daily lessons on how to harness uh, commercial technology at real time for military application and and actually scale it. Um, does the confluence of need and scarcity accelerate changes that have been going on for a number of years? And what are the lessons from Ukraine that most need to be learned from, from your guys' uh, standpoint, and, and most importantly, implemented? Mark, why don't you start us off? And Debbie, want to get your sense on that as well. Look, I think the, the needs and requirements of DOD will likely always, always exceed uh, what is uh, budgeted to us from Congress. Um, be, because there is so much that needs to be done. Uh, I always thought it was incumbent upon myself as Secretary of the Army and Secretary of Defense to go inside my own budgets and dig for every penny and nickel and, and dime that I could find. As, as you might recall, uh, Vago, I, I ran the nat- night court process in 2018 right. and then again in 2019. And we, we found uh, freed up $50, $60 billion to invest in Army modernization and then carry that same pro- process forward to uh, DOD when I became SecDef and generated $7 billion in the first year. So I think it's the obligation of leaders to dig deep first and uh, make sure that we're making good use of the taxpayers' dollars to make sure that uh, we can account for everything. But by the same token, then we have to go talk to Congress and seek the funding we need to make sure that we can guarantee the, the nation's defense and, um, and defend our interests abroad. Debbie, what are some of the uh, key lessons from your standpoint, looking at how the Ukrainians are adopting uh, technology. I mean, their cycles of technological adoption are, are nothing short of eye-watering. Uh, obviously, the Defense Department is sending teams over to uh, Ukraine to sort of study uh, study that. What do, you, what do you think, what jumps out at you um, on, on how they're sort of doing this that can sort of guide us uh, in, in the process that we're trying to engage in? So they are, in my opinion, the poster child of doing innovation on the fly, and they are the poster child of necessity being the mother of invention. So they're dealing largely with old equipment. Yes, they've got new equipment that the US and allies have made available to them, but they're largely dealing with old stuff. But they are innovating every single day. They're innovating with commercial technology like drones. They've certainly leveraged space to the hilt. And the one that I think is most impressive is uh, they're innovating with artificial intelligence and software generally in order to, dispe- to in order to speed up decision making when it comes to precision targeting. You know, we've all been reading in the paper that they have done a marvelous job of hitting Russian command and control centers, logistics, of a, they've killed Russian generals, quite a few of them unexpectedly. Again, that would be the command and control center. So how did they figure all this out? And the answer is through AI and through the ability to pull from many different data sources, many different sensors, figure out what's happening where, and then put the right kind of kinetic or cyber effect on that target. So David Ignatius, for example, has written extensively about Palantir, which by the way, I think is one of the success stories of a commercial firm that does scale. We don't have enough of those uh, success stories in DOD. Um, But anyway, they've done just a great job of innovating in many ways on the fly. 
to add to just to what Dr. Esper said, um, I think that scarcity, although you would think now we have to think and now we have to be innovative frequently in a bureaucracy, scarcity doesn't necessarily drive innovation, particularly if the innovative ideas require additional money, because obviously you're cutting things, you're not plussing up very much. So um, existing programs will get protected before new ideas will get funded, at least in my experience in a bureaucracy. So the fact that the budget is going to remain flat, that's a worrisome, um, that's a worrisome impact on innovative ideas, in my view. Dr. If I could just tag on. Yeah, but yeah, I just want to tag on. First of all, I agree with what Secretary James said uh, about what's happening on the battlefield in Ukraine. And in, in this context, we think about uh, hardware and weapons and equipment, but it's also driven a lot of tactical innovation, uh, innovation of techniques and procedures, which will in turn drive a, a innovation uh, when it comes to acquisition and stuff like that. On that last part, uh, we always got to keep in mind, and this was part and parcel of what we considered on the commission is, uh, even if necessity drives innovation in DOD or, or scarcity, and I, I agree with Secretary James that it doesn't necessarily, or even if you have leaders who are driving, uh, driving that type of uh, uh, deep dives into the budget, at the end of the day, DOD has to propose that to Congress, and Congress has the final say. And, uh, and, and that's where you really need uh, a sense of urgency as well, a sense of innovation, all those things that otherwise get trapped in that 18-month cycle that we call the budget process. Um, we are, uh, and we'll, we'll get to uh, financial uh, flexibility because uh, the, the uh, planning, programming, budgeting, and execution system, Bob Hale, former Pentagon comptroller, is leading the team. I know you guys are talking to him about that. Uh, and I want to get to that in a minute in terms of uh, more uh, spending flexibility. Um, but Secretary James, start us off, right? Your report, and it's, it's uh, terrific in terms of some of the concrete recommendations to move the ball faster. The entire innovation environment has been advancing now for the past uh, 15 or, or, or so years uh, when Dr. Carter was sort of driving this, but Secretary Hagel had started as well with the defense innovation initiatives uh, that, that he and Bob Work uh, were, were spearheading as well uh, during, during your term. Um, but we've still had, I've sort of lost count in about 130 of these uh, reports, right? Why is this report that you guys are doing uh, different uh, in terms of what it is you're trying to tackle? Because for many in Washington, this is kind of a cottage industry of defense reform studies. Well, in a, you're, you're right, Vago. Um, and I would go, I think this dates back even earlier than Dr. Carter and the standup of the Defense Innovation Unit, which used to be experimental. It's now just DIU. Um, I think we've been doing at least what we would call acquisition reform, which in some way, shape or form was designed to speed things up and get the kinds of technologies that we need into the Defense Department faster. We've been doing that for as long as I've been in this business, and that's uh, 40 years now. So it's a long time. I would also say, though, over the course of 40 years, a lot has happened and things have improved. So I don't want to be all gloom and doom here. I want to give credit where credit is due. And I think the stand-up of DIU and that era, that was that was sort of a major launch point where we have really focused on these commercial technologies. And we've recognized in the words of Heidi Shu, for example, there are 14 critical technologies that uh, the smart people in DOD feel are critical for the future. 11 of those 14 are driven by the private sector. So if that statistic alone ought to be enough to convince that we need to do things differently. Now, why is our report different? First of all, we have 
uh, a bipartisan set of commissioners who have very recent real world experience on the very matters that are being talked about here, both in business as well as in the government. And Mark and I certainly pressed uh, very hard throughout that these uh, recommendations that whatever we were going to recommend needed to be actionable. It needed to be clear who was responsible. Uh, and we needed to make sure that the dependencies, for example, some of these things depend on both Congress and the administration taking action. Some things the administration can take action on its own. But the point is, who's responsible? Where is it actionable? And I hope that will help um, advance the ball. I, I know for a fact uh, that uh, the deputy secretary, uh, Secretary Hicks, has stood up um, an action group, a working group to look at all of these uh, commission recommendations and see which ones might be adoptable. So I think that's that's a, a good indication of interest. And right. I also know that um, the Atlantic Council has been out very actively briefing this on Capitol Hill and has received a very positive response. Now, of course, with that said, we'll see what happens. I, I do think there have been reforms over the years. We had specifically in the, in the mid 20 teens or so, you know, the introduction of mid-tier acquisition authorities and things like that. And look, we it needs to be said that we still got the best military in the world, hands down. But what has changed in the strategic environment, as we know, is innovation has shifted from uh, the government sector, uh, DOD in this case, to the private sector. And um, uh, at the same time, we've seen an acceleration of innovation out of the, out of the venture community. At the same time, uh, with the rise of China as an adversary, we've seen them adopt some of those practices and really be able to match the speed, uh, if not exceed in some cases, the innovation uh, in, in ways that uh, our former adversaries that in the Soviet Union, if you will, uh, couldn't match. And so we're in a new strategic environment, which is, which is what really demands another major push at um, breaking down the obstacles to accelerated innovation and innovation adoption. And that's why uh, the strategic reason why we took this on. You guys have 10 recommendations. Number one is to adopt a, a capability portfolio model uh, approach where select uh, senior program executives uh, would have re responsibility for DOD-wide investment in uh, promising uh, and emerging uh, technologies. I should note uh, the Deputy Secretary, and you mentioned uh, Dr. Hicks, has been working on a portfolio approach to capabilities uh, development. Why, why is the adopt a capability portfolio model approach, uh, you know, for $12, uh, for, for $12 million a day, you can adopt this capability. Uh, why, why is this the number one uh, on your list? It, this is an important recommendation, Vago, because at present, there are so many separate line items in the budget, and there is so little flexibility to go between line items when in the year of execution, an opportunity presents. So perhaps you'd like to spend a little bit more on this one, or something goes slightly wrong on that one. So perhaps you wanna spend a little bit less on that one. There's so little flexibility at present to do that without creating a reprogramming action and going back to Congress and through four committees and the time that it takes. Our proposal would on a pilot basis take maybe five, five PEOs and allow those PEOs, you'd have to, of course, negotiate this with Congress, but they'd have to agree. They would be allowed to have greater flexibility within light items, within the portfolio, so that they could take advantage and leap upon those, um, those good possibilities that come up. They could take money away without a reprogram authority from maybe another uh, 
line item where things weren't going as originally predicted. This would be an important step forward because let us keep in mind, and your listeners I'm sure are well aware, that from the time you develop a budget until the time you actually get into the year of execution, it's a year, year and a half, sometimes as long as two if we're dealing with extensive CRs. So it's very hard to predict these things with this degree of precision with so many different line items. We think a portfolio approach, at least on a pilot basis, would would help us advance the ball. And I would also note this is not far off from what the former DIU director, Michael Brown, was advocating. I'll just take one step further to say is you cannot predict a year or 18 months in advance how a program will perform. You know, if if a program moves far quicker than expected and you can free up some funds and maybe start putting it into a higher production number, then that would be a good thing. Or if it slows down. Uh, or stumbles, then you want to be able to shift that money quickly. And I think the overarching point is this. Look, pe- people talk often about government should be run like a business. <laughs> Businesses don't run this way, where every single item that you're purchasing is, is monitored by somebody else who actually controls the budget. You have to give leaders the freedom to make these choices. After all, that's why they go through a confirmation process. That's why they're vetted by the White House. Uh, that's why they constantly appear before the House and Senate is to uh, give those bodies the chance to do the oversight that is necessary. So if, if that's going to be the case, then give them the freedom to make these choices. And, and then uh, obviously, you know, hold, hold them accountable if they err. Um, Secretary James, one of the things that you've uh, noted is there are too many people checking the checkers uh, at the end of the day. Bob Hale, as I mentioned, the former Pentagon comptroller, is leading the PPBE uh, reform Commission, there are two kinds of people, those who visit PPBE on everybody else and those who have PPBE visited on, on them. Um, what are what are the changes and, and the different thinking fundamentally that we did that Dr. Esper just touched on? Yeah, well, in terms of what I meant by too many checkers checking the checkers is that in our overall acquisition process, there is such a large bureaucracy. Many, many people and many, many offices can slow it down. They ask questions. Many of the questions are legitimate, don't get me wrong. But they ask questions and this office will ask a question or say they're not satisfied with something. And then the team who's trying to advance the ball on that acquisition program goes back and they, re- they redo certain things and they come back and then, okay, that office is set. Then they move on to another office and the same thing happens. So all of these checkers, checking the checkers, slow things down. One of our recommendations is to look at models like the in the, in the Air Force, the uh, Rapid Capabilities Office, or in the Army, the Army Futures Command, which Dr. Esper launched. These uh, models could well give a clue as to how we could reform the overall system. And again, these models have uh, more concurrent reviews where all of the key offices and all of the key players are reviewing at the same time. The questions get out on the table. The issues get out on the table at the same time. And it allows them to move uh, move much more rapidly. Again, that's one of our other recommendations, um, and that that, by the way, is one that uh, DoD could begin to reform and could begin to do on its own right away. Well, for for the entirety of my career, and you uh, mentioned this, right? I mean, I only date about thirty uh, or so years. Uh, the name of the game has been to become, for the department to become a faster follower. And the late, great Dr. Jack Gansler was a key intellectual father of the approach. Um, 
you, you both tried to do this in various guises uh, when you were in the department. Uh, Doc, uh, uh, Secretary James, you were trying to do this with the B-21 program. Uh, Dr. Esper, you were trying to do this uh, kind of across the board on how you get the ball moving uh, faster. Uh, defense, the DIU, Defense Innovation Unit, has helped solve specific problems for clients across the OD, but in relatively narrow form, and very few of those have sort of scaled. Uh, we tend to work with smaller companies to solve some of these problems or in, or in sort of boutique ways. How do we work and bring in the bigger firms, the bigger commercial firms? And I would add, right, defense industry, heritage defense industry margins are in question, uh, as they do occasionally. I mean, if we can't get that margin question right, then doing this with a bigger commercial firm that may have much, much higher margins is, is a different issue. How do you get the incentives straight, the incentives right, the financial compensation models right to actually attract some of these bigger companies? And how do you scale them? How do you, how do you, how do, you do this to bring the bigger folks through the door that might be able to solve some of your bigger problems? Well, look, first of all, we need all the players in the ecosystem to, to be involved, right? Everything from the, the leading edge startups, if you will, all the way to, to the traditional primes. And of course, I, I served in, in one of those primes. But the, the focus of our commission was really on the, the leading edge, uh, the, where, the, where we felt that the innovation was the most basic, the rawest, the most entrepreneurial. And, uh, and how do you make sure that they get the attention from, from the department that they need? Uh, I'm less concerned about the primes because they have the financial assets. Uh, they have the existing programs that are bringing in revenue. Uh, they have their established networks and suppliers and everything. They can sustain themselves and they understand how the system works. But for a, a startup, which may be two or three people or maybe 12 or 13, uh, until they get that first contract, they are out there on their own. And at uh, any point in time, risk of going under because of lack of capital or if they have capital, loss of faith uh, by their investors that, that they will get that first contract. And if you really believe that's where the most cutting edge technology is, and, and I believe that to be the case, then we have to figure out a way to, to, to marry them up much more sooner with DOD and to enable and facilitate and accelerate all those processes or else we risk losing that technology opportunity that, uh, that these young startups are presenting. I would just add, I too am not terribly um, concerned about the primes, the primes know how to do business with DOD. They've cracked the code. They have large numbers of people. They have uh, substantial discretionary resources to be able to um, go after opportunities. And although their margins are, may not be as high as, say, technology firms or some others, I think you know investors should be aware that putting their money into DOD companies, large companies in particular, is still a, a good investment. So I, I, too, am not too worried about them. You mentioned the B-21, Vago, and I think, you know, to me, the lessons learned on the B-21, which so far sounds like it's going well as somebody who reads about it from, from afar and doesn't have all the um, insight that I used to have. But we made some decisions early on about that, that we were going to not reinvent and, and come up with everything brand spank and new, but rather we were going to utilize mature technologies so that it became more of an integration situation, not a new developing everything all at once situation. So that's sort of one lesson learned. Keep the requirements stable. You, as you well know, 
a commercial firm or a, a DOD prime has every right. If you change the requirements, they have every right to come back right. and ask for more money. So keep those requirements stable, use open mission systems so that you can allow for upgrades as, as technology changes. And then think very long and hard about what type of contract you use. You know, is it going to be cost plus? Is it going to be firm fixed price? Uh, B21 has a bit of both depending on what stage it is in the acquisition process. So uh, those were some of my lessons learned from that particular program. How do you bring in, though, right? I understand the, the heritage defense contractor part of it and the innovative company part of it. But are we doing enough and what are the incentives needed for the bigger commercial uh, companies? Let's say Apple, right? I mean, an iPhone is actually a frequency hopping radio, right? If you were going to bring some of the really big technology companies in, uh, which was right, I mean, if you go back to what Dr. Gansler was talking about, was to try to do that, but many big commercial technology companies have sort of resisted, right? Or, or not, you know, uh, gotten into the business in as big of a fashion, although some have, right? AWS and Google, uh, and certainly on the AI side of things. Are we, are we doing enough to make it easier for some of those bigger commercial players to come into the defense business? And how do you guys define success? What does success look like at the end of this? Well, I think I'll, I'll take first stab at that. I think, again, the big players, you mentioned Apple, Microsoft, maybe others, I think they face a different set of uh, consequences and obstacles than, than the small startup. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, intellectual property, who owns it, right? Uh, from my time in industry, I recognize that that was a stumbling point because too often uh, the government would want to own any of the IP developed uh, by, um, by, the, by the corporate entity. And, um, and so in 2018 or so, we began rewriting the IP policy in the Army and then eventually it migrated uh, up to DOD. Uh, Ellen Lord took it on and, and spread across DOD, which was, which I think was a much more balanced approach to how you handle IP. And I think maybe that helped lead more companies um, to, to, uh, to support DOD. So for example, we had Microsoft come in and actually win the contract for the Army's IVAS goggles. And it was a, a major contract. And we need to see more of that happen. Now, there are also cultural issues out there with some of the major tech firms and their willingness to, to kind of get involved in DOD. And I think in some ways that has that era has moved on, if you will. But the, 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 the big companies face just a different set of hurdles and they have to ask themselves at the end of the day, do I really want to do business with DOD? And if I do, how does that uh, affect my more lucrative, more global commercial business? And that's a fundamental question. Even startups ask themselves early on, am I better off going the DOD route and selling this dual use technology? Or should I just try and market it within the private sector because, because of the different options it provides them? Debbie? Yeah, I would agree with that. So um, certainly Microsoft has a thriving government business, AWS, Google, you mentioned some of these, Vago. I don't know about Apple per se, but I think what these kinds of companies, if they're interested in doing business with DOD, as, as Dr. Esper said, they have to really look at the mechanics of it. They have to set up usually different cost accounting systems. I mean, it is quite something uh, to, for a large company to break into DOD, and it may not be worth it because, as you point out, the margins are not as high from DOD work. So that's an individual company decision. But clearly, some of the biggies, Microsoft, AWS, and Google leap to mind, have, have decided it is worth it. And they are doing thriving businesses in DOD. 
As for what success looks like, and to pivot back to our report, particularly let's take this PEO example of let's do some pilots with PEO portfolio approaches. Here's what success would look like. Let's say uh, one of the PEOs that is identified for this um, is, is working on a variety of um, capabilities within the portfolio, but suddenly something from DIU comes to their attention of a novel technology that comes out of the private sector, which would allow them to really improve the capability in one of the elements that they're working on. At present, there'd be nothing they could do about that because their hands are tied and they, they can't sort of move the money around. But under our approach, they could take money without Congress's okay, they could take money from another element within their PEO. They could acquire that thing that came to their attention via, in my example, the DIU, and they could inject it into the program and perhaps get a capability to the warfighter quicker that is more capable. So that would be an example of what success looks like to me as we do this pilot program and we come out with you know, a test. Is this working? Are people able to act in an agile way now that they have this new authority? And what additional capability has gone to the warfighter as a result? And, yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll just I'll just ahead. pile on there to say uh, to take it one step further to say that success looks like uh, DoD employing one or several of these different uh, recommendations, and then what you end up seeing, and I think Secretary James mentioned it there at the end of her statement, was you see the warfighter uh, getting items in their hand in less than twelve months at the speed of business uh, that they're they're able to beat the market, they're able to beat their adversaries, the Chinese or the Russians or, or whoever, to the capability. We're not at that point right now because it's too hard to move money around. It's too hard to award contracts uh, and to do all that in a timely manner. So in, in my view, uh, success would look like awarding uh, contracts in months, not years. And uh, that would be, if we could see those metrics get driven down, that would be a real positive outcome. Uh, it, it indeed would be. And we've almost touched uh, on all of your recommendations. And uh, Secretary James, I think what you were talking about is the $250 million uh, set aside of money you guys would put aside in order to be able to help accelerate an experimentation into a, a, a deliverable uh, capability uh, as well. Let me let me ask uh, one, uh, and I, we're, time is running short, so I have just two brief questions I want to ask. One is, uh, and and uh, Dr. Esper, why don't you uh, take this one, right? You, you urge for the consolidating of existing technology programs. Which, which program groups would you consolidate? How do you do that? How do you, how do you prioritize that? Because for each one of these technologies, right? It has their own champion. They're in their own track. Some of them are science projects to nowhere that we keep going for long periods of time. Uh, contractors get involved, right? And it's their pet rock. Uh, and they do it. I mean, how do how do you how do you consolidate this? What's the approach you would bring to doing that? Well, with more time, I'd probably give you a better answer. But what jumps to mind is uh, I think you've got to look at the portfolios where there's where there is a lot happening, where we see the threat changing, where there is a lot of innovation occurring, and and those factors alone are, are places where I would look. So what what comes to mind then is air defense, right? So right now, look at the two ends of the spectrum when it comes to enemy threats we face at the very, very high end, maneuverable hypersonic weapons, right, that move more than Mach 5 and can do incredible things. And then on the low end, we have drones and drone swarms. Uh, so that to me, and, and DOD, by the way, is putting a lot of money into both buckets. The Army did. It was one of our six priorities uh, was air and missile defense. 
It's some it's it's a space that I'm involved in in my venture capital role with uh, Red Cell Partners. But it seems to me that given what's happening on the threat basis there and all the energy going into that from everything from traditional interceptors, guns, missiles, directed energy, you name it, that would be a place where you could consolidate the budget lines, the portfolio, and say to the program executive officer, uh, look, you use your best judgment based as you based on how you see the threat, either the threat developing or changing or the capabilities developing or changing to put your money where you think you need it at the right place and time and give them the flexibility to respond appropriately or to gain an, gain a, an advanced capability appropriately. Secretary James, do you have anything uh, to add to that? Because I do have one last question I'd like to uh, hit both of you with. I would just say that today there's a, somewhere in the order of 1,700 line items in the investment accounts alone of DOD. And we think that's just too much. Some consolidation of these line items, much like we talked about in this portfolio approach, would allow greater flexibility for those in DOD who are charged with delivering these capabilities and and acquiring uh, the capabilities. And we just think that consolidations make a lot of sense and would save a lot of time. Uh, let me ask uh, one last uh, question. If we have a scaling and adoption problem, um, and I know this is not one of your recommendations, but I wanted to ask this because I'm a fan of uh, history. In World War II, if Esper James came up with a better mousetrap, we didn't necessarily scale Esper James to do that. We made them the prime, and then we pulled somebody else to actually produce whatever that capability was uh, at scale. The Ukrainians are not getting wrapped around an axle about somebody's really bright idea. Uh, and actually they're distributing production all across uh, the country. What are some creative methods we can use that if we have a good idea and a good capability, we're not actually getting ourselves uh, boxed into a corner? What, what, is there some creative room there where a smaller company can actually serve as a prime and maybe a heritage defense contractor, a Boeing or a Lockheed or a Raytheon uh, is the one that produces and scales that an SAIC. I wanna give you a, a shout out there, <laughs> Debbie. I'll, I'll jump in first. I, I think there are two separate problems, right? Uh, adoption is one thing, uh, but scaling, there, there is a certain degree of physics to scaling, right? If, if you get that first contract, you have to acquire uh, the, the equipment. You have to you have to find a factory, maybe build a factory. You have to train people and qualify people. There are things there that just simply take a, a, a certain amount of time that you just can't get around. Now, how could you mitigate that? Uh, you know, if DoD put the money down, you might be able to. Uh, and and if you could partner with somebody that already has some of those capabilities, uh, you may you may be able to piggyback into a production line somehow. Maybe I don't know. And to accelerate that, or you may be able to build uh, uh, multiple production lines. You know, I'm, I'm speaking to you now from Europe, and this is a discussion now about how do we make the the, uh, the defense industrial base in Europe, uh, in the West, more resilient. And, and a lot of it is being discussed about diversifying, building redundancy into this so that you can, uh, your, your scaling would take maybe the same amount of time. But once you hit that scaling part, part you, can re you can reach higher levels of volume, if you will. Uh, those are just some of the ideas. But I think we have to seriously ask that, particularly as we've learned over the past uh, 15 months that in conflict, you quickly use up a lot of your platforms and ammunition and things. And you have to have a defense industrial base that can be far more responsive than what we're seeing today. Yeah, I would add that, uh, to my knowledge, there is nothing that would block a priori is 
small company from acting as prime. And certainly we have lots of examples of uh, small businesses, businesses that do serve as primes, but I don't think we have um, examples of small businesses serving as primes in anything involving a large scale uh, production contract. I mean, when you're the prime, of course, there's a lot to keep track of. There is a lot to do. And by definition, small companies may not have the background and DOD may not have the confidence uh, that they can uh, produce such a large thing and, and, and act as prime. But there's certainly nothing that would prohibit it. And just while we're on specifically this issue of small businesses, I'd also like to point out that another one of our recommendations would be to basically um, unleash, I'll say, greater potential out of the small business innovation, innovation research uh, program, basically allowing it more types of small companies to participate and hopefully giving it some more funding because we think that's a great program. But at present, certain companies such as those that have substantial VC backing aren't allowed to participate. That's an example of how we feel we ought to open the program up and allow greater participation. Guys, thank you so very much uh, for joining us. It was just an honor and pleasure uh, having you both uh, on the program and eagerly look forward uh, to the next update uh, and to the final report. And I commend the audience uh, to take seriously the recommendations in this because what you guys are doing is focusing on a different element of the problem, which is the adoption uh, of the technologies uh, rather than merely sort of the surface uh, innovation uh, part of it. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks, Fargo. Thanks, Vago. Great to be with you.